Hello and welcome back to the Classical Music Pod. It's Sam and Tim here with a bag of treats for you. In this week's episode, we've got an interview with Proms composer Freya Whaley-Cohen and her partner in crime, William Marzi. We've got a Hong Kong protest song. And one less pair of testicles than you might imagine. Controversy has swirled around the Metropolitan Opera in New York this week. Following on from our previous Placido Domingo story, the accused opera singer has this week stepped down from playing the title role in Verdi's Macbeth, which opened on Wednesday at New York. The Mets general manager Peter Gelb said, We are grateful for him for recognising that he needed to step down, although suspectly the announcement came just 24 hours after Gelb let it be known that he was standing by Domingo. Employees at the Met put pressure on the opera company last week, telling American National Public Radio they were furious with it for continuing its association with Domingo. They said they believed their employer had a specific responsibility to take allegations of sexual misconduct seriously after the downfall of conductor James Levine, a story we covered last year. Everybody knows that Domingo is a womanizer and that he could be persistent. One of the Met employees who has worked at the opera for decades told NPR. Domingo is still to play Giorgio Germont in La Traviata at the Bolshoi next April, although his name has disappeared from its original inclusion in an European Culture Prize Gala night at the Vienna Opera. In the interest of impartiality, we must also include the following quote from Indian conductor Zubin Mehta, interviewed last week in the Spanish newspaper El Peth. My heart breaks for Placido's pain. Quite. Better news from the Met is that for the first time in its 136-year history, the Met is staging an opera by a black composer. The company announced last week that it would be presenting Fire Shut Up in My Bones by the composer and jazz trumpeter Terence Blanchard in a coming season. In the coming season. Slightly non-committal from the Met there. Yeah, very much. And also, we are 136 years in. Maybe they should hurry up. Met gain or Met loss? Ha-ha! Tim, tell me about Paris Opera. This week, members of the Paris Opera will be following in the footsteps of the Gilets Jaunes and striking as part of a, a national strike, which is instigated by the proposed pension system reforms in France. Tuesday's performance of La Traviata at Le Palais Garnier is cancelled. Because they're worth it. John Wilson has revived the extinct Symphonia of London, drawing on some of the leading players from across the capital, to make up a band for one-off recording projects, the first of which is a corn gold disc. Mm. Uh, John Wilson, I suppose, couldn't create another orchestra with his name in. No, He's already got one of those. That's true. But that's great because I like corn gold. Hilary Hahn, in other news, the fabulous American violinist, has chosen the Philadelphia-based Project 440 as the beneficiary of her 2014 Dresden Music Festival, Glashut, 
original price, which is worth uh, $25,000, I think. And wow. for those who don't know, it's a requirement of this particular award that the money won goes to a music education project. And it's taken her five years to decide. Mm. Okay, cool. Well, Project 440 runs programs which draw on a shared love of music to help young people build essential life skills, offering free after-school classes and an annual college fair for musicians. So what a nice cause. A worthy cause. We haven't spoken about the last night of the proms, which happened before our last pod episode. I hear it was relevant and woke and all of those things. It certainly caused a stir and got some very positive news stories going around classical music, so not to be sniffed at. And finally, the American composer and Pulitzer Prize winner Chris Rouse has died age 70. Fellow composer John Adams expressed his condolences in a tweet on Saturday, saying... I will very much miss Charlie Rass's benevolently grumpy Brahmsian presence, not to mention his strong music. We shared the same birthday and would communicate once a year on that date. I'll forever regret my eternal razzing of his beloved and luckless Orioles. I don't quite understand what that's a reference What's to. What's an Orioles? An Orioles bird. Maybe it's a piece. Oh, yeah, probably. Analysis. Tim, you may remember in our first ever episode, we poked fun at Vladimir Putin, being gently sceptical at the fact he had put a critical opera director under house arrest because of fraud. Ah, yes, the number of Twitter bots attacking us spiked wildly. Well, I thought it was about time we tweaked the nose of another totalitarian state today. Let's analyse a Hong Kong protest song. It's really fun to say Hong Kong protest song. Everyone should try it. Our Hong Kong protest song, the new unofficial anthem, is called Glory to Thee Hong Kong, and it sounds like this. Written by Thomas Duxiel, that's a pseudonym, the anthem was composed specifically for the ongoing protests in Hong Kong. Hundreds of thousands of citizens have taken part in demonstrations against the introduction of the E-Lab. Is that a Yorkshireman's lab? The E-Lab. Alas, it's less fun. The Extradition Law Amendment Bill which critics believe will bring Hong Kong citizens under Chinese jurisdiction. No, that is less fun, you're right. Much like the protest, the song's popularity is a groundswell of bottom-up rather than top-down support. It was posted online in a protest forum, and from there it has become enormously popular, superseding other better-known songs on protests. The question I have is why? Is the reason a musical one? Can we replicate it? It might be worth knowing for anyone who might need to write a protest song in the near future. That's not what I want, it's not what they want, and we're going to work very hard to to avoid it. In trying to work out what makes this a good protest song, I've come up with one thing I can't explain, and four contributing factors. Four factors, eh? The first factor. 
The first factor is vocal range. The majority of the melody sits in a narrow, comfortable low range, kind of like where you talk. This is crucial. It means everyone can sing it. There's a low musical threshold for getting involved. Importantly, though, at the end, it hops up an octave. Protesters will have learned the melody at the start. Now they're confident in it to belt it out. And doing that feels exciting. You'll Never Walk Alone is my favourite example of this. Liverpool Football Club get their crowd amped up so much through that high ending. The second factor. Like an episode of Neighbours, this tune is full of rising phrases. Each melodic chunk starts with a rising interval. This lifts you up, (laughs) is harmonically strong and can be found in other popular melodies. But bigger than this is the structural feeling of rising. Rising, rising, breaking free to that peak of a sixth, a very aspirational interval. Reason two for success is rising up musically as well as politically. The third factor. Anacrusis. Fear of spiders. Nope. An upbeat. An upbeat gives a sense of momentum and sets up any march with a sense of purpose. It's a trend you can see across everything from Verdi's Chorus of the Hebrew Slaves to the Monty Python theme tune, originally a march by Sousa. Without that upbeat, they sound a bit stagnant to me. Reason three, fear of spiders, anacrusis. The fourth fact. Dotted rhythms. Dotting a pair of quavers is always fun. One little and one large always seems to work. Laurel and Hardy, French and Saunders, Owen and Heskey, Poppleton and Fisher. It also adds a sense of momentum and impetus. In a way, it creates a mini upbeat to every moment. So what's this thing you can't explain? Well... All of those factors I've just listed about Glory to Thee Hong Kong are shared with one of the hits that inspired it, Do You Hear the People Sing from Les Mis. Protesters had been singing that before Glory to Thee took off. Unfortunately, it also shares another common feature, some seriously dodgy harmony. Very dodgy indeed. Tim, are you ready for a name drop? Yes. Sound clip humour at the ready. When I was providing some vocal arrangements for Oscar-winning composer Anne Dudley on the 2012 film Les Mis. She asked me to provide some harmonic alternatives for Do You Hear the People Sing because it's at best a little angular, a little bit ugly. I couldn't come up with anything that worked and so my suggestion was to delete it and to sing it in unison. In Glory to Thee Hong Kong, they've gone halfway to doing the same thing but then have kind of fallen back on the dodgy harmony bits. There's loads of similar movement between the tune and the bass line. Listen to this opening phrase. Yuck, right? Yuck. Yuck! But then there's some nice bits, like here where the bass line moves in the opposite direction to the melody. It comes alive. And it's such a shame because harmony is so important. So important because it shows that different ideas, different sounds can contribute, coexist and enhance each other through collaboration. Unlike Do You Hear the People Sing, I think this tune is ripe for reharmonisation and the bad harmony is something I can't understand. I think it's important that it does have good harmony for people to sing 
as an emblem of their nation, maybe like Swami Hari, the Finnish hymn by Sibelius. So I'd like to put it out to the listeners. A competition? A competition indeed. Sounds like that needs a jingle. Oh, for sure. To be announced by the new Jingle Jingle. Jingle. Please find sheet music of the Hong Kong protest song in the links below. Send us your reharmonizations in any style you like, and we'll listen to it and play it on the next pod. Try and preserve those four factors the range, the rising phrases, anacrusis, and dotted rhythms. Then tweet us a screenshot or send it as a MIDI file or email us or something. Get in contact. Support the Hong Kong protesters through reharmonizing and collaborating with them on their melody. We might need their help again soon. That's not what I want. It's not what they want. And we're going to work very hard to, to avoid it. I agree with Nick. I agree with Gordon. I agree with every single word. You must have a consensus. I am joined by Marek Bowen, the Head of Artistic Planning at BBC National Orchestra of Wales. We're here together in the bowels of the Royal Albert Hall on the night of the BBC National Orchestra of Wales final prom, the Johnny Greenwood prom, and I'm very much looking forward to watching it. But tonight we're here to talk about something different, Classical Playlist Live. Marek, can you paint a picture of what this concert is all about? So broadly speaking, this concert is about bringing some of the production value and experiences of the non-classical music experience into a classical concert. So the seats in Brangwyn Hall and Swansea are basically removed. There are no rows of seats in the concert. People are invited to lie on the floor, sit in bean bags or lie on yoga mats or stand up, walk around. So there's a greater level of informality. They're encouraged to bring drinks in, which I think is something that is happening more broadly in other concerts, but still some concert halls are very twitchy about that. Audience members are encouraged to keep their phones on and to photograph the performers and to tweet live during the concert to post videos that they're taking during the concert which again is very unusual at the moment critically the the repertoire in the concert there's no piece longer than six seven or eight minutes long i think there are 19 pieces across the 80 90 minutes of music and i suppose that is acknowledging let's face it the fact that our target audience for this concert doesn't necessarily feel comfortable listening to whole stretches of classical music that might be 20, 30, 50 minutes long. It's recognising that it's not so much a deficit in attention span, it's just a lack of experience. Amongst all of those different characteristics of the event and the experience, the main story about classical music is that it is, the repertoire is incredibly varied. There's music by Bach, there's music by Hugh Watkins himself and the Australian composer Graham Kerner, so two or three living composers, Carl Jenkins, recently deceased John Tavener, but lots of mainstream music in between by Carl Orff, Elgar, Mahler, the Adagietto from the Fifth Symphony. So a huge amount of variety of genres, but also textures, and critically in classical playlist live, there are three performance stations in the hall. The orchestra and the chorus will be at the back of the venue, on the flat. 
there's a, a smaller stage in the middle on one of the long side walls of the venue, and then there will be performances from the main stage of the Brangwen Hall, which also has an organ. And the idea is that when one of these short pieces finishes, performers are already in place at the next stage to begin to perform the next piece as the previous one fades. What's the model for this? What's the inspiration? So I first did this in Tewkesbury Abbey, uh, a wonderful 800-year-old church building in Gloucestershire in my previous job. Uh, as director of the Cheltenham Music Festival. And that was a very, very successful event with the same idea of three stages and performers walking around the space. The inspiration, I suppose, comes from actually what happens upstairs where we are in the Royal Albert Hall when people go to proms, particularly in the gallery right up at the top. There's a wonderful atmosphere there and there are people lying on the floor, walking around, but always listening carefully. And that is the sort of classical model. The other two models come from beyond classical music. Um, Top of the Pops, the multi-stages, and the other one is the Jules Holland, later with Jules Holland experience yeah. on, on BBC Two. So I, th I think the motivation is, is to make it particularly attractive to new audiences, people who would admit themselves that they're not particularly attracted to or comfortable with the idea of sitting in rows of seats and going into a concert and having to be quiet, having to be still. I suppose the other inspiration comes from the visual arts world. There's a massive, well-known interest in contemporary art and people always say, why don't those people readily come to contemporary music performances? And the obvious answer is that if you don't like a painting in a gallery, you can very quickly and easily move on to the next one. That isn't the case in a, in a traditional contemporary or even mainstream classical concert. If, if, you, if you're sat down at the beginning of a Brahms symphony and you've, you don't know what you're going to get with a Brahms symphony and you don't like it after two minutes, you're pretty much stuck there for 40 minutes. Whereas with 15 or 20 shorter pieces in a programme of classical music with such range of textures and genre, the idea is that if you don't like that piece that's playing for those four minutes, it's going to finish fairly quickly and then something else will start. There's a good chance that most people in the audience are going to like at least some of those different pieces. It's true, isn't it? I suppose when you've got somebody forced to sit and watch something for 40 minutes, it can actually have the opposite effect sometimes and it can put them off. And yeah, the exactly. Of it, and, yeah. and as a promoter for 20, 25 years, I'm acutely aware as, a, as somebody who, who's putting on classical music performances and spending so much time and money marketing to get that audience there. If you don't give them a good experience, especially for when you know that there's a few first timers there, you know that you've you've completely screwed it and you've yeah. lost them yeah. for another 20 years. Well, thank you very much for um, Splendid. talking to me. And yeah, good luck with the concert tonight. And you can catch the BBC National Orchestra and Chorus of Wales alongside soloist Amy Dixon, Hugh Watkins and Hugh Williams at Swansea's Brownwyn Hall on Saturday the 5th of October 2019. Don't miss it.
This week, I've been listening to the Farinelli Manuscript, a new CD on Glosser Records, with mezzo-soprano Anne Hellenberg and Baroque Ensemble Stile Galant, led by Stefano Aresi. This Farinelli Manuscript, is that an actual historical item? Yes, the Farinelli Manuscript is. In the (laughs) mid-18th century, one of the biggest singers in Europe was this lad, Carlo Maria Michelangelo Nicola Brosti, and rather like Reg Dwight, he realised he needed to rename himself and performed under the name Farinelli. A bit like Seal. A bit like Seal or Madonna or... um... When Prince changed his name to that symbol. Yeah. Uh, Unlike Elton John, Farinelli was castrated in his youth, and so his voice never broke. He was a castrato singing with a range and voice type we just don't hear today. That happened to Prince as well, didn't it? With good reason. <laughs> we don't hear that type it of voice today. It is with today. good reason, yes. Uh, even today we are protestical. In 1753, Farinelli sent a precious collection of music from Madrid to the Empress Maria Teresa in Vienna, the Farinelli manuscript. It contained some of the arias he usually sang during private evening concerts for the King of Spain, Philip V. Among them were a couple of quite well-known arias, Son Qual Nave and Quel Un Signolo, for which he wrote uh, his own little da capos and arias and ornaments and fiddly bits. He wrote them all out by hand to send uh, along. So I feel like I've heard the name Farinelli bounded around recently. You may well have done. Uh, he has trickled into popular culture... If you're a real connoisseur of Italian cinema, there was a film in 1994. Ah, yes, yes. But perhaps <laughs> more likely is the 2015 critically acclaimed play, Farinelli and the King, which had music by Clara Van Campen, starred Mark Rylance. Oh, we love Mark uh, Rylance. We do like Mark Rylance. As King the... F- <laughs> it's like we know him. We, we like his acting. <laughs> what a nice guy. What a nice guy. As King Philip V of Spain, whose insomnia was soothed by the voice of Yeston Davis, who was playing Farinelli. So tell me about the disc. What's it like? Well, I very much like the programme idea. I think it's really cool to be reviving a programme from a couple of hundred years ago and seeing if it still stands up today. They, as a group, aim for a sort of historically informed authenticity uh, with all the late Baroque sounds you'd expect, gut strings and natural brass. And uh, I think that it works. It's played very well. I sometimes get a little bit shirty about people sort of just going straight down the line with the sort of standard Baroque stuff because there's no such thing as authentic, right? We are always reinterpreting and always reimagining and it's a reflection of us as much as it is a reflection of what we think the sounds were at the time so uh why not take some creative risks but in this instance this music hasn't been recorded before Mm. nobody else is uh putting it out so you might as well go for a straight bat down the line here's our best bet of what it sounded like maybe the people who come along next will do something a bit more innovative Uh, maybe those sort of holy saval um spanish inflections and the one thing that sort of stands out is if you're going for an authentic finger quotes kind of sound it feels weird or looks counterintuitive on the disc to have uh, a mezzo soprano singing uh, rather than a countertenor the male voice in falsetto which is perhaps closer to the idea of a castrato um maybe Mm. you could have had someone like yeston davis or a salisbury lad and the next big thing in countertenoring james hall yeah we need to get him on the podcast we really should there's a disc coming out soon of him um but I, i mean i was totally wrong about this one Hallenberg does sound amazing and, uh, yeah. like, glistening at 52. Just She's 52 years old. It sounds amazing, fresh as a daisy. And um, she is perhaps better placed than a countertenor to tackle particularly the ornaments that Farinelli adds. Often he'll start really low, or the ornaments that he's added will start really low, you know, maybe on an E or an F below middle C, mm. and then slide all the way up over an octave and a half. 
And you think about a countertenor trying to do that, they're going to go from their chest voice into their falsettos of uh, to uh. Yeah, yeah. And there's going to be, I mean, even the most skilled countertenors, that's going to feel like different poles. Uh, and she can do it so gracefully. Obviously, no one has the same anatomy as a castrato, but she is a wonderful advocate for the repertoire. I think just the thing about the disc as a whole uh, is actually maybe a criticism of Farinelli as much as anyone else, or Philip mm. V's taste. It does feel quite mono and uh, similar by the end. It's over an hour long. Mm. The textures remain similar throughout. There are lots of dark capos, repeating of uh, initial material, sort of returns of stuff. And even with lovely ornaments... Uh, it, it does sort of, you know... It monochrome. Yeah, you drift off a little bit. Or I, I certainly did. Maybe real connoisseurs wouldn't. But perhaps the thing that we should remember Farinelli for is his genius as a performer and not his great programming. Composer Fact File. Farinelli. Born 1705 in Andrea, Italy, to a family of musicians. Christened Carlo Maria Michelangelo Nicola Broschi. When his dad died, aged only 36, the consequent loss of economic security for the whole family led to Carlo being castrated. An excuse had to be found for this operation, and a fall from a horse was the given reason. The origins of Broshi's stage name Farinelli are unclear, but were probably linked to two rich Neapolitan lawyers, the brothers Farina, who sponsored his studies. His vocal range was recorded as the F below middle C to the D two octaves above middle C. He had many fans. One titled lady famously exclaimed from a theatre box, One God! One Farinelli! This instance was immortalised in plate two of William Hogarth's A Rake's Progress. Singing at Versailles to King Louis XV, he received his portrait set in diamonds as a gift. He was named chamber musician to King Philip V of Spain and gave nightly concerts to the royal family. He died in Bologna the 16th of September, 1782. His house later became a sugar factory. On hearing the last castrati Moreschi, the audience chanted, Long live the knife! Drop it, it isn't worth it, and actually, you're not very good at it. Tim, you've been off to see uh, Brainy Bauer or something, haven't you? Gerald Barry. His new, not new, his opera, The Intelligence Park, a new production at the Limbury Theatre in the Royal Opera House. The first stage production since the very first back in 1990. So it's nearly 30 years old now. And it's also his very first opera. And it was bonkers, is, <laughs> is the main takeaway. So, it, I mean, in a month in which, let's be honest, the British political landscape has more often resembled a Beckettian wasteland than a functioning European democracy. A night with this absurdist, existentially fraught opera couldn't actually have been more appropriate. And um, for those hoping to be baffled and thrilled and affronted and tickled all in one go, then this new production by Nigel Lurie will not disappoint. Let's put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) 
it is set in an 18th century Irish country house. Like all the best things. Like all the best things. And it's essentially an opera about the protagonist, Parodies, writing an opera, Syria. Meta. Exactly, yes. It's based on the story of Giusto Fernandino Tenducci, on our theme of Castrati. Ah. So an Irish daughter of a lawyer, Dorothea Mounsell, ran away with this Italian Castrato and married him to avoid being forced into an arranged marriage by her father. So this opera takes that story, borrows it, if you will, uh, but the man who was initially betrothed to the female protagonist also ends up falling with the Castrato. And there, therein lies... The, uh, it's a love triangle. It's a love triangle. Classic. Indeed. Tonally, atonally, I should say, it's absolutely bonkers musically. It's fast, it's furious, it's unremitting. Mm. In t- pretty much throughout, there are barely any pauses for breath in the score. And because of that, it's incredibly hard. And I have the utmost respect for both Jessica Cottis, the conductor, Ashley Beauchamp, the repetitor, who's a friend of the pod, and all of the singers involved in the production. What I think was most interesting about Gerald Barry's compositional style is, is the way that the vocal writing was incredibly confused in juxtaposition with the text, which feels very sure of itself, this libretto written by Vincent Dean. And you have these melodies jumping around all over the place, a bit like Weber's songs, and it's counterintuitive to the climaxes in the text. It's contradictory to the phrasing of the libretto and their random repeats and time signature changes, and the harmony has completely gone from under them. So, for example, the magistrate Kramer, who's the father of the woman who runs away with the castrato, who what would be in a real 18th century opera, Syria, a sort of buffo bass. Yeah, classic. Classic. He has all of these characteristics in his mannerisms and his lines, but his music is full of jagged shapes and he randomly jumps into falsetto. And in fact, all of the vocal writing is completely topsy-turvy like that. And so it gives this effect of he is singing these words, but it's almost like he doesn't quite know what they mean Mm. or he doesn't believe them. And that creates an undercurrent of sadness within the characters and even anger. It's like they've completely lost control and it's a really interesting dynamic on stage. It's almost as if Gerald Barry is punishing his characters in a way. He's got them trapped in this hamster wheel and he's making it go 100 miles an hour and he won't let them out. Which is not an unsimilar conceit from Laura Wade's new play, The Watsons, which is based on an unfinished novel by Jane Austen, in which the novelist comes out and berates the characters. Now, I have to say this would be more effective if the acoustic in the Limbury Theatre had been a bit better and we would be able to hear the words over the top of the ensemble. And if my neck didn't ache from looking up at the surtitles because I was right (laughs) at the bottom. But nonetheless, I was still able to appreciate this fascinating juxtaposition. There were a few things that remain baffling to me. For example, Father Time scuttling across the stage in the in each intermission. Right. Uh, there were pocket watches and there were lots of mentions of time in the text. Perhaps this is some meditation on the inevitability of time. I don't know. It went slightly over my head. Cool. But Maybe it was... it's a reference to the... No, it can't be because the Alice in Wonderland 
that he wrote was later. It was, yeah. But that would yeah, have been a nice yeah, yeah. connection, hypothetically, mm, alas. Sorry. No, that's all right. It was interesting. I was sat next to the husband of one of the cast members, female cast members, and just to give a testament to how difficult the music was, he said that they'd been on holiday quite recently and she'd spent none of it hanging out with him. She'd spent <laughs> the entire time practicing her lines because it was so furiously <laughs> I think one other thing that's interesting to mention is the links with Handel. So Gerald Barry is a really big Handel opera fan. And if you think about it, that's opera seria. This opera is about to compose a writer in opera seria. A lot of the time in opera seria, the cast or the, the, the characters are buoyed on by the music coming from the pit Mm. rather than the other way around the emotion can feel a little bit overwrought perhaps and there's a sort of self-conscious effect that and as it said in the program actually that a gap opens between the libretto and the music in Handel operas in much the same way as it does in Gerald Barry's opera so there, mm. there are interesting parallels there what is the theme what is it about what's Gerald Barry trying to say we don't know the characters definitely don't know and Barry himself said that he has no fixed ideas, inverted commas. And I suppose that is the point. Last week I popped down to Bloomsbury to speak to composers Freya Whaley-Cohen and William Marzi, two of the three founding members of Listen Pony. We spoke about their upcoming concert and upcoming EP, as well as having a bit of a ramble chat about composition in general. Freya, first of all, I want to congratulate you on your upcoming Proms Commission, which is happening in two days. Yeah, it's happening on Monday. On Monday. Yeah, rehearsal right after this. <laughs> That's really... Oh, what, you're going straight to rehearsal from yeah, here? Yeah, literally That's right really after this. Exciting. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's going to be... Is it Cadogan or is yeah, it... Yeah, it's the cha- so it's the chamber proms at Cadogan Hall. That's exactly. really exciting. Yeah. In... Yeah. Uh, what is it? In the afternoon, I think, isn't it? Yeah, it's lunchtime. Yeah. Um, William, you're, you're a composer as well. Yep. And you, actually, one of your works is being performed at the next Listen Pony yeah, gig. Yeah. But before we get into that, can you maybe tell me a little bit more about Listen Pony, how you guys started, what you guys do? Give me a, a roundup. Oh, uh, the roundup. So we set it up after university, we all met there. We basically just wanted somewhere to bring our friends together and like put some music on by our friends, by us, in a relaxed setting. Something that we, you know, we hadn't found around London yet. Yeah, and also, um, as well as it being the idea of we had all these musician friends and composer friends that had stuff that they'd all just having left university at that point wanted to put together and make something. We wanted something that our friends who weren't musicians would come to too. So that was the initial starting point. And I think when we first did it, we thought oh, it will be one concert. Yeah. We didn't really know it was mm. going to be- become a concert series, but the first concert yeah it was really full and was like really sold lovely. out and lovely, <laughs> and so it became a lot more, a lot less shambolic uh, yeah, gradually, yeah. <laughs> and over the because that was seven, uh, what was that July? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So over the seven years since then, it sort of gradually formed into something a bit more. Yeah, less disorganised. Yeah. <laughs> a collective, perhaps, or a... not, not. Yeah, we're funny with that word because we, because collective sounds like we share a kind of 
philosophy or like we have like we have like we have one of the what's that manifesto manifesto or something like that (laughs) but it's more just we're actually all quite different yeah we're all quite different which kind of it's reflected in the series and then if we call ourselves a collective it doesn't really reflect the series suddenly and it's just a bit wanky as well (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) Uh, it it seems so sure of itself yeah so yeah so now Listen Pony is this regular concert series probably once about every three or four to five months depending where we have three groups, two classical, one pop or jazz, mm-hmm. and then we have all these new commissions and old music and new music, like things that the classical players are like having their repertoire recently, and we all we just shuffle it all up into twenty minute sets with these lovely breaks in between where people can like hang out and drink and yeah. have a nice time. So it's always basically Informal seating and lots of wine in between no and stage. sort of relaxed yeah. feeling. And yeah, when William says shuffle it all up, we do do that. But we do actually, we are quite careful about how we pair the old oh, music yeah. and the new music mm. together. We shuffle it really well. Yeah, <laughs> we shuffle it really well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, so we have um, well, between four and six new commissions per concert. So each of the classical ensembles will have half the stuff that they're going to be playing is going to be new commissions for them. And half is going to be stuff that they've played before that we've gone, well, that's going to go really well with these pieces and mm. we're going to sort of put mm. that together. And then the last set, as William says, is always not classical. Mm. Yeah. Do you enjoy that sort of curatorial process? Mm. Is that something that gives you a bit of a kick? Yeah, it's really exciting. Well, we have this kind of half curatorial process at the moment, which is really interesting, where because we ask a lot of the players to bring music that they're interested in, and then we just sort of bring it all to the table and see how it well works out, and then sometimes we change things. But mm. it's very interesting seeing how concerts come together because we have that kind of like wild card aspect, mm. and also because a lot of the music is brand new, I and mean, some of the commissions are coming in in three days, and we don't know what they're going to be like. That's the that real with, wild card. So that's the real wild yeah. card as well. You so can, then we have yeah. those combining with music that other people have brought that we not, didn't necessarily choose as well. Because sometimes it's on the night, and then you then the, the arc of the concert becomes apparent right then and there, which is really, really fun. Uh, well, because quite often a commission comes in and you look at it, and then when you hear it um, live, you think, well, it's not really expe- how I expected that mm. to feel live. And also, like, when you commission a composer, even if you know their work really well, quite often what they happen to try out in that concert might be not yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lot experimental of the time, for them. Or... A lot of the time, because they know our concerts are, like, relaxed, and our audience generally is quite receptive and because of those breaks, basically. A lot of composers, and myself actually, I'll go a little bit further into something when I write. It's a good place to sort of push your boundaries. Yeah. yeah. Because of that, once we get to the concert, then the links between pieces, and because obviously like people like, will hear links between the new music and the old music just because they're next to each other, and the links that sort of arise between these new pieces which no one's ever heard before and like really, really classical pieces. Can be really surprising. Yeah, yeah. really surprising, yeah. yeah. And you're also a record label as well as a commissioning body and non non collective. What's your <laughs> what's your role as a as a record label? What kind of things are you producing? Well, we got to this point where we were having we record all the concerts anyway, mm. and we had to the point where we had all these amazing live recordings because like so much nice like we were saying all these like weird combinations of stuff kind of just arise from the way that we organise it, and we just wanted to get those mm. out there to a larger audience and just let people. Hear these amazing things I've been yeah. having. So the next one is Tobey Davis's uh, the music she played throughout the concert put on one CD. Yeah. So in the sets that we do, 
each set is mixed between the different ensembles. But for our EPs, we pick one of the resonant ensembles or resident soloists and pick together all the things mm. that were throughout the night and put them into the mm, EP. Yeah. yeah. So the, yeah. So like you said, the next one is to be. Yes. Yeah, so the next one is the new piece by Alex Paxton. Yeah. Which was so fun. A Telemann, some Bach arranged by Tabea, and then yours. A piece by me, yeah. yeah. And that's coming out on the 4th of October. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And on the 2nd of October, you're having your next gig Yep. at Krypton the Green in Clerkenwell. I mentioned earlier that's going to be featuring one of your pieces, mm-hmm. William. Are you excited for that? Oh, very. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's that for? What's it really that's, for? that's for the Liberty Quartet. I've done these two little slightly... Mad pieces, like I was saying, with going a bit further than I would usually. I do a lot of stuff out with like Bach, hymn, no, I don't mean hymns, but chorales. Because mm. I like, I kind of find them as interesting, sort of like the ba- like basic source material for all classical music, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this one is just a sort of a Bach chorale with slightly wrong chords, really fast, and again and again and again and again. Oh, fantastic. Uh, which is like one of these things where I just think, I've always really wanted to do that, and then I get to these kind of concerts, and I'm like, I think I'll finally do the thing, which is just about chorale again and again yeah. and again. Yeah. Who else is going to be involved in that gig? Composers-wise? Yeah, because yeah, yeah. they were all commissioned, open call. So the people we've chosen from the open school are Ruta Vitkowskite and Agadija Medexite. And then we've also commissioned one other composer who someone we've been wanting to commission for a little while who's called Joseph Howard. So we generally try as much as possible to include, because it's a little bit how it started, include some music by the three of us who run it. Mm. So William's one of our commissions, he's, as we just talked about, writing a new piece for Ligeti Quartet. And Josephine and I each both had some pieces for Quartet. And so the Ligeti Quartet will be playing two not new pieces by mm-hmm. Josephine and by me. Yeah. As part, yeah, so part of the Ligeti Quartet set, they're also doing an Anna Meredith piece. Yes. And some Vivaldi. Yes. And so Joe Havlat is a pianist, but he's what he's doing for this one, which is also something that he's we've seen him do before, which yeah, is yeah. really fun, is playing on what we describe as tiny weird keyboards. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> that's how we started. We were like, let's have Joe on tiny weird keyboards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then... As composers said what they wanted to write for and started to narrow it down. So we kind of gave them a bit of open choice. So we've got Toy Piano, mm-hmm. Celeste. And what's this called? You blow into no, the keyboard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Sam knows. Melodica. Melodica. Melodica and one of these. She's writing for yeah, 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 Kalimba. Exactly. Kalimba. Yeah, exactly. Kalimba. Kalimba, that's what it's called. So it's going to be a sort of whole yeah, yeah, selection yeah. of tiny weird keyboards. Mm. And of course, you haven't seen any of these commissions yet. I'm well, we've seen one of them. Have we? Yeah, well, because Agadija's been really. Oh, she's described it last to us, but have we seen this one? No, no, but she sent us a. Clip. Oh, yeah, no, she, she sent, sent us a clip. clip. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the composers has been really amazingly open about her process, which we're not, mm. we're not necessarily used to, which has been really fun. She's yeah. been sort of telling us. Sounds like you tend to shut yourself away you're, when you're composing and not let, let anyone see you yeah, until the final well, thing. I don't think I'm as I don't think I'm as aware as how she sounds. She's so she's really interested in um, weaving processes, which I was really excited and to patterns. hear about because I think I, I also think it'd be like that. So there was the idea of uh, patterns going coming in and out and well just well you know. Mm. I think that, I think this is what she's doing with this piece. I'm not totally yeah. sure, but she like sets up a kind of weaving pattern almost on the keys and then sort of guides it through a piece. 
so I guess because she's so aware of the process, she can just sort of send us clips and demos yeah. all the way through. Mm. Well, but I mean, it's sort of one of those things where it's really nice, but we don't necessarily expect people to yeah, do that yeah. because some people sort of sketch totally abstractly and then write at the end, put it all together. Yeah, yeah. Some yeah. people sort of do things more methodically and are more open about it. I and don't. I, I, it's to... just never occurs to me that like the commissioner would want to know what yeah, I'm yeah, doing yeah, as yeah, I'm yeah, going along. Nice. So it never occurs to me mm. to email them during it. But yeah, it's it's really nice that she's doing that. And you say a lot of your friends that come to or people that come to these concerts that you put on aren't those that would necessarily go to a traditional or a concert hall gig. Mm. They might not go to a prom or whatever. Mm. Have you noticed amongst those people any change of behaviour? Have they, since being at your your gigs, have people expressed an interest in going and trying out something a bit more old school? Anecdotally, possibly, possibly yes, I think. Exactly, anecdotally. I know a few people who say, off, you know, I've learnt loads about new music because I've gone to this and now I've like actually bought tickets to go to the opera with my friend. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, anecdotally, it seems yeah. that it has, after seven years, yeah. started to trick people into going to concerts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but there's this thing that like when people come for the first time and they don't know how serious to be. Yeah. Like, when once they're in the concert and they like, we can see them sort of sit really stiff at the start. Yeah. Because it's, it's almost just like not really knowing what's about to happen. Because you, you do put yourself in a slightly vulnerable position going to a concert in general, I think. Particularly when, because we have a small venue, no stage, like the, like the players are literally there in front of you. But that's so true, though, because you go to a, you go to a gig gig in yeah. a pub. Yeah. Everyone knows how to behave. Yeah, exactly. You know, you yeah. can yeah, just yeah, yeah. lean over and whisper and, that, and go up to the bar and whatever. But yeah, I yeah. suppose even slightly out of that, traditional gig setup and you yeah. move into something that's a bit crossover and no one quite knows where to s what to do with the first 10 minutes anyway yeah, yeah. yeah. but you can see when well the first 10 minutes the people relax in but then because we always do pop or jazz or something towards the end where people kind of have done that before mm. you can feel the vibe in the room change it, it, like, can you yeah people sit different but there are definitely people who don't really go to classical music except for listen pony three times <laughs> yeah, a year yeah. there are people that i i know who go I don't really go to classical music. Well, I go to listen pony three times a year, mm. but that's it. I mean, so that's, that's an interesting thing yeah. as well. And a yeah. credit to you, I'd, I'd say. Yeah, it's been it's been interesting watching it because, like, right at the start, it's like our friends, and then become friends of friends, and then after a while, you get this like third, fourth circle of people just like who. <laughs> We don't know. It's people who keep and they keep coming get back. And you're like, yeah, yeah, it's really <laughs> interesting. Like, oh, you're just one of the <laughs> listen pony regulars. Yeah, well, because. Yeah, I mean, we have probably between 100 and 180 people come to most gigs. And now I feel like I know maybe one or two of those groups mm. of, like, people who have come. Mm. But overall, it's yeah. strangers. strangers. Which is good, obviously. It's special, I think. Yeah, you, yeah. yeah, yeah. and it's what you'd expect otherwise. But, like, because we started it off as a sort of... This Let's do thing. some nice yeah. thing with our friends and <laughs> yeah, have everyone come. It sort of turned into... Yeah. Do you feel quite protective over it as a, or, or, or maybe protective's not the right word, but proud and and like you've yeah, like definitely. you've made a thing? Yeah, it'll be yeah definitely. It's been like the whole of our twenties doing this. Yeah. Thing. I mean, how old were we started? Twenty-one. Yeah. Twenty-one-ish type thing. Yeah. Um, how old are you now? I, I, I wouldn't like to say. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, yeah. No, but I definitely feel like we're quite proud of it because mm. it was something that we made that was a bit different 
and has become kind of a focal point for some people and has created actually quite a lot of new works over the years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, perhaps on that note, I shall look forward to being at the next gig on the 2nd of October at the Crypt in Clerkenwell. Look forward to seeing you there. Tim, tell me about what's coming up, especially on Turkmenistani Independence Day. Indeed, Friday the 27th of September is Turkmenistani Independence Day. Also happening on that day at the Royal Festival Hall, Jarovsky does Tchaikovsky <laughs> Symphony Number no. 6 with the London Philharmonic, plus Britain's Violin Concerto with Julia Fisher. That is well worth going to. On the 28th and 29th of September at St Lawrence's Church, Stroud, the brand new festival Hidden Notes is launching. It's going to feature the cellist pianist Sebastian Plano, who plays the piano, percussionist Mano Delago's nine-piece band, and pianist Lubomir Melnik, as well as violinist Daniel Pioro. Sunday the 29th at King's Place, woman of the moment Isata Kanemason and the violinist Eleanor de Mellon. It's a good name. <laughs> are giving a recital of works by Brahms and Schumann. Should be great. On Monday the 30th of September, it's Stanford's birthday. He was born in 1852, and everyone forgets that he's Irish, but he was Irish. I didn't know he was Irish. On the 2nd of October, at the Crypt on the Green in Clerkenwell, Listen Pony are hosting their 19th iteration of their concert series. You heard about that earlier in this episode. Also on 2nd of October, Stephen Fry will be presenting a concert of Beethoven and Dussek at the Barbican given by the Academy of Ancient Music under Richard Egar. Dussek's mm. really underrated and really nice composer. I don't know him at all. The day after that is actually Steve Reich's 83rd birthday, 3rd Ooh. of October, uh, one in which he shares with Clive Owen, Lena Hedy, who's Cersei Lannister in Game of Thrones, Pierre Bonnard, the French uh, Impressionist. Who's in your loo. He's in the my toilet. Loo, yeah. Gore Vidal, Ashley Simpson, sister of... Jessica Simpson, Jessica Simpson. the country and western singer. Thomas Wolfe, journalist and novelist, and ASAP Rocky. Fresh from being uh, released from Sweden or something. Swedish jail, I yeah, think. Yeah, cool. Well, happy birthday, ASAP Rocky. Good one for him and mm. Steve Reich, hopefully. From the 3rd to the 23rd of October, in cathedrals across the land, the City of London Symphonia will be playing the music of Arvo Pert and Dobrinka Tabakova. I'm familiar with Pert, but not Tabakova. Is no, it good, I'm Tim? today. Um, in an ultra-relaxing setting. Ultra-relaxed and hopefully ultra-relaxing setting with cushions and optional roaming. Mm. From the 10th to the 11th of October in St John's Churchyard in Leeds, the Manchester Collective have curated a live performance of Messiaen's epic... Catalogue of the birds. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Before we sign off, I'd like to say a quick thank you to Freya Whaley Cohen and William Marzi of Listen Pony. It was really nice talking to you guys. A big thank you to Glossa Records for their help with the Farinelli manuscript. Also, a big thank you to Louis Theroux for gracefully sharing a lift with me earlier this week. And a final thank you in anticipation of all the fresh reviews, likes and shares that we'll be getting, we notice they've dried up just a little bit. So if you haven't left us a review, then, uh, you know, get yourself in gear. <laughs>